Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. Going. Or Amazon. Amazon gift cards are a good option too. Yeah. All right. Um, So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Um, For our Easter series this year, we're starting our Easter series this morning. For our our Easter series, um, we're going through the last few chapters of the book of Matthew. Um, And as I was going through and reading through these and trying to kind of get an overall theme for these last few chapters, one thing really stood out to me, and it was that there are so many people here in Jesus's life, whether it was those who were close to him or those who were just around at that time, but so many people betrayed him whether it was they personally betrayed him or they betrayed their responsibilities and therefore betrayed Jesus. Um, And so uh, for this Easter series, um, the title is Betrayed. And we're going to be looking at how all of these different people betrayed Jesus and they turned their back on him. But in the end, we're going to look at how he responds to each of them. Um, And so this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26 and it's verses 36 through 56. It's kind of a big chunk. Um, but the title is Betrayed by His Disciples. Um, but the main idea of this passage is that Jesus was not plan B. Jesus was not plan B. He was the plan from the beginning. He was the plan from always. Jesus was always God's plan for our salvation. He was not plan B. And so this morning, uh, I've got this text broken down into uh, three divisions, and that's uh, the will of the Father, your will be done, and fulfilling prophecy. I'm going to pray and we'll get right into this text. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we open up your word, we praise you because you have given your word to us. Paul says that that your word was breathed by you, breathed into existence by you. And so, Lord, we pray as we dig into your word that we can be changed by your word that you will mold us to be more like you, draw us near to you, and help us to to live uh, in obedience to your will. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so as I said, we're in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36. It says, then Jesus, I'm sorry, this is is right after the Last Supper, right after Jesus was in the upper room with the disciples and they have their last Passover meal. And so right after that is where we pick up, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, Sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now, I can't imagine being one of Jesus' disciples in this moment, hearing these words from Jesus. He's been warning them for a long time now that he's going to be killed, that the Son of Man must be killed. But every time when he tells them that, they just don't seem to get it. They can't get it through their thick skulls that Jesus is going to be tortured and killed. But here Jesus is is, is telling them, you know, my soul is crushed to the point of grief. Well, you know, for them to sit there and hear this, I, I can't imagine being there. What in the world must they be thinking? If he's so worried like this, then it seems like the disciples would be quite alarmed that something big is about to happen. Something bad is about to happen. Then Jesus tells them to stay awake and keep guard. This word keep watch in the original Greek was, it had that, that 
that connotation to keep guard. It's not just to, you know, watch, but to watch out. Like, stand guard for me and, and look out. Make sure nothing bad is about to come for me. That's what he's telling them. Stay awake and keep guard. Now, imagine these disciples, they have left everything to follow Jesus because they truly believe in him. Not just as a rabbi, not just as a king, but they truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They rightfully truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God. All right, check out this conversation that we get in John 6. Uh, it says, At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, Are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. And so the disciples they weren't lacking in belief. They knew who Jesus was. They believed in him. They had knowledge about him. They had not just a, a head knowledge, but a knowledge that transformed their lives. They left their families. They left their jobs. They left their friends. They left their hometowns. They left their dreams and desires behind all to follow Jesus. They didn't lack in faith. They had faith, and that faith showed through their actions. And if we look at who Jesus is talking to here in verse 38, it's Peter, James, and John. Right? These are often referred to as the inner three of Jesus' disciples. Right? Jesus had 12 disciples that followed him everywhere he went. But these three, they were his closest friends. So when Jesus asks them to keep guard as he goes deeper into the garden to pray, you would think that they would actually do that. Most of you probably already knows what happens, but let's keep reading. Picking up in verse 39, he went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. So, we see that the disciples failed to do what Jesus asked. But that's not really what's important here. What is important is these, uh, these first verses that are Jesus' words. Right? First, we need to talk about this phrase, this cup of suffering. Jesus says, this cup of suffering. Right? Jesus knows what is about to happen. The entire reason that he came to earth was, was to be sacrificed, tortured and sacrificed for our sins, to make atonement for our sins. This is the whole reason he came. He knows what's about to happen. See, we sinned and we rebelled against God. We abandoned God. We rejected God. We turned our backs on him. But God made, made a way for us to be reconciled with him. We turned our backs on him. We rejected him. But he loved us enough to come and die for our sins. Through the Bible, we see that the punishment for sin is death. That's what we deserve because we sinned against God. And since we are sinners, we are not righteous and cannot be allowed into heaven. But Jesus came to fix that. His primary objective, his primary objective of his mission was to free us from sin's punishment. His death is the substitution for the death that we deserve. Jesus was born for this purpose. He knew it. He knew it while he was in heaven before he was born to Mary in Bethlehem. He knew how torturous it would be. 
Even still, he came for us. He did this because he loves you. He wants to atone for your sins, to make that payment so that you can be forgiven. And he was willing to do this for you. But even still, we get to peer into Jesus' humanity in this passage and see the fear that he had immediately before going to this torturous death. He says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Something else that's important to note here, probably one of the most important doctrinal truths that can be learned from this passage, is that Jesus had to drink this cup of suffering. He had to die for our sins. That must have happened. He asks the Father if there is any other way possible that he wouldn't have to drink this cup. If there was any other way that the Father would choose that way instead, thus freeing Jesus from this torturous death. Now, it's common in our culture for people to say things like, well, it doesn't matter which religion you believe. As long as you believe in God, then you'll, you'll get to heaven. They all lead to the same place anyway. That's a common misconception in our culture. Unfortunately, it's not just the secular culture around us that says things like that. New research has found, or new new surveys have found, I think it was um, Barna or Pew Research, has found that even people, even most, uh, the majority of people who attend evangelical churches believe that Jesus is just one way to heaven. That, That is scary to me, that a majority of people who attend evangelical churches believe that Jesus is one way to heaven. But that's not true. Jesus is not just one way to heaven. Jesus is the only way to heaven. And that's what we're looking at here. Jesus says, my father, if possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. If it was possible for us to get to heaven any other way, by any other means, then Jesus would not have had to go through this suffering. If it was possible for us to get to heaven by any other means, then Jesus went to the cross for no reason. If it was possible for us to get to heaven by any other means, then Jesus' death on the cross is nothing more than divine child abuse. But this is the only way to heaven. It is the only way that our sins can be atoned for. Therefore, Jesus had to go to the cross. It's not plan B, because there was no other plan. Jesus is the only plan. There is no plan B. Jesus is the only plan. Jesus is the only way to heaven. And he's asking the Father that there, if there's any other way to do that instead. But Jesus did go to the cross. He was crucified and he died so that, and therefore we can know that this is the only way to salvation. If there's any other way, then the Father would not have gone through with this. Jesus is the only way to heaven. As he said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to salvation. It's not some pluralistic idea that there is some other way to get there. In our study through the book of Luke, we see that Jesus is often combating the legalism of the Pharisees, that they think that somehow they can earn their righteousness or buy their righteousness. I think that also is a very common uh, philosophy in our world, in our culture. That people think that if you're just a good enough person, then you'll make your way to heaven. Or if you do enough good to weigh out the bad in your life. See, we just can't do that. Because we are sinful. We are sinful people. And there is not enough good that we could do to outweigh our sin. 
any one sin in your life, and you deserve hell. That's why Jesus had to came, why Jesus had to come. Because we can't earn our own righteousness. He had to earn it for us. And when we place our faith in him, our sin debt is paid on the cross. The punishment that we deserve is paid on the cross. And he gives us his righteousness. He is our only hope of salvation. He came to earth for this purpose, knowing what type of torture and death was in store for him. And even though he knew what was coming, we can still see that he was in anguish in preparation for it. Look at what he says. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus is willing to go through with this. He was overcome with grief and anguish, but was still willing to be obedient to the Father. Jesus knows this is the only way to save us. This is why he came, motivated by his love for us. And even with God's perfect love, Jesus does not anticipate the cross with happiness or easiness. He recognizes how torturous and how painful it's going to be. The best word to describe Jesus' anticipation of the cross is willingness. And in this, he displays for us how we are to obey his commands to us. A few weeks ago, we read Jesus' words where he told the disciples following him that if they wanted to be his disciples, he says, let's see if I, did I remember to put this in? Yes, uh, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Now here in Matthew 26, we see Jesus' willingness to stand up to his own anguish and distress, choosing God's will over his own, and thus he's going to literally carry his own cross. Jesus is setting the example for us here. When it comes to following God's will in our lives, it's going to be hard sometimes. It's going to be scary sometimes. The world around us is going to think that we are foolish. It sounds like we're talking about Sunday school now. But we have to pray that God gives us the courage to stand up. We pray that God gives us the willingness to stand up and be obedient to Him. It takes courage. Courage isn't doing something that's not scary. Courage is recognizing how scary or how dangerous something might be and doing it anyway. But the motivation behind that courage is not pride. The motivation behind that courage is not idiocracy. The motivation behind that courage is the love that God has for us and our willingness to be obedient to him. Now, that's not the end of the conversation between the Father and Jesus. Picking up in verse 42, Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My Father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. So again, we see Jesus is expressing his anxiety about going to the cross. But that anxiety is overcome by his willingness to be obedient. But why does Jesus do this? Well, that's because it is the Father's will. Why is it the Father's will? Well, because he loves us and he wants us to be reconciled to him. So even though we are the guilty party, he makes a way for us to be reconciled back to him. God gives the greatest sacrifice because of his great love. And in so doing, Jesus sets the example for his disciples. He does ask us to set aside our preferences in obedience to him, but not without first showing us what that type of obedience looks like. Jesus asks a second time if there is another way, 
But since there is not, he surrenders to the Father's will. In all of this, God is glorified because it displays both his love, his perfect love, and his, purchase, his perfect justice. God is perfectly willing, I'm sorry, God is perfectly loving and perfectly just. Since he is perfectly just, he cannot ignore sin. It cannot be swept under the rug. Sin must be punished by death. But since God is perfectly loving, he takes that punishment upon himself. He sacrifices himself to be the perfect substitution for us. Jesus' death on the cross is the ultimate display of God's love and God's justice. And with all of this beautiful drama playing out in front of them, Jesus' closest friends are asleep. The disciples always get a bad rap in this story. And I really tried to find a good reason to defend them here. But I couldn't. Again, this was their hope. Right? Jesus was their hope. Not just their political hope. He was not just their rabbi. He was their eternal hope. Peter said, We know that you have the words that lead to eternal life. We know that you are the Son of God. Jesus was their hope. And he asks them to keep a watch out. And they fail and fall asleep. They gave up everything to follow him. And they fail when he asks them to keep watch. This might seem like a betrayal, but the real betrayal is coming soon enough. Now, obviously, I like to think that I would have done something a little bit different here. I like to think that I would have been able to stay awake and watch and pray like Jesus asks. I wasn't there. I like to think I would have done that, but I wasn't there, and I can't say I was there and I did that. I don't know. Maybe they just needed a, a little cup of goodness from Cumberland Coffee Roasters. But just because Jesus' disciples were not able to keep up, Jesus goes again, a third time, to ask the same thing. Obviously, this is weighing heavy on his heart. But the story is not over yet. It says, Then he came to the disciples and said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. And even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests and elders of the people. The traitor, Judas, had given them a prearranged signal. You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed and gave him the kiss. Jesus says, My friend, Go ahead and do what you've come for. Then others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us? And he would send them instantly. Wait a second, wait a second. I, I need to take just a quick side note here, right? Some people have used this scripture to try and say that Jesus taught that Christians must be pacifists. This is a side note. It's not the main point here, right? I, I think that would be taking this passage out of context. Right? Obviously, Jesus must not have been completely opposed to weapons, because we know from John 18 that this person who takes out the sword and cuts off the slave's ear was Peter. And Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends. He's the one who drew the sword and attacked. If Jesus wanted to teach pacifism, he had plenty of opportunity to do so, especially to one of his closest friends. Yes, he takes a pacifist stance at this moment, but it's for a specific purpose. 
because what was about to happen was the Father's will. So with that side note over, let's keep reading. Jesus says, don't you realize that I could ask my Father for thousands of angels to protect us, and he would send them instantly? But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? Now, I know you see that little highlight right there, but I'm not quite ready to talk about it yet. I just wanted to make sure that you saw it. We're keeping going. Verse 55. Then Jesus said to the crowd, Am I one of the dangerous, sorry, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was teaching there every, I was there teaching every day. But this all is happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scriptures. At that point, all the disciples deserted him and fled. Jesus asks a few questions here. Am I some dangerous revolutionary? You've come to arrest me armed to the teeth. Why couldn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there teaching every day. See, for the entire week leading up to this moment, Jesus had been in the temple every day, publicly every day, teaching out in the open. Every day, Jesus was there. He was in front of the crowds giving lessons. He was in front of the crowds confronting the Pharisees. At the beginning of that week, Jesus went into the temple and cleansed it. He drove out the money changers. That was the second time he did that. The entire week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, he would, go into the, he would go into Jerusalem in the morning, teach at the temple all day. Then in the evening, he and his disciples would go back to Bethany. It was a town that was just under two miles away. They'd go uh, leave Jerusalem, go through the valley, back up uh, Mount, uh, Mount Moriah. I, think it, I can't remember which mountain it was right now. But down the valley and up to another mountain is just under two miles. It's a pretty simple hike for people who were used to walking all day every day. They would do that every day. And when they were there in Bethany, they would stay with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. That was where they lived. Jesus is saying, look, y'all had all week where you could have come and arrested me. I was out in public every day teaching peacefully, and you could have come and arrested me there. Instead, you wait for the middle of the night, and you come armed to the teeth to arrest me. Why do y'all choose to come and treat me like a dangerous criminal? See, they could have easily arrested him in town, but instead, they do a first century version of a no-knock warrant. But as Jesus often does, this, is, this really is just a rhetorical question because he already knows the answer. All of this is happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scriptures. See, this ties back to that previous highlight that I had that we didn't quite talk about. It's basically saying the same thing. The first time he was telling his disciple to put away the sword because this is all happening to fulfill prophecy. Now he's telling his captors that they're doing this because they're doing it to fulfill prophecy. Jesus is not afraid to point out the authority's unjust actions, but he still submits to the Father's will as foretold in these prophecies. All over the Old Testament, it's prophesied that God's chosen one would provide salvation for the people. The Messiah would bring deliverance. The Lamb would be sacrificed for atonement. Many people fail to recognize that all of these different lines of prophecy throughout the Old Testament all pointed to one person, one man, the God-man Jesus. But all along, this was the plan. We see that plan laid out all throughout the Old Testament. The first time we see that plan is way back in Genesis 3. Nope, I didn't put that one up there. Way back in Genesis 3, when God tells the serpent, I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Very, very early in Scripture, we see that the enemy of man will be defeated by the son of a woman. This offspring will be injured, 
but the devil will be completely defeated. Jesus knew what he was coming to earth to do because he wasn't plan B. He was the plan from the very beginning. So what application do we take from this? How do we apply these truths to our lives as disciples of Jesus? So we have our application always in our uh, three indicators, the knowing, being, and doing. So our no application is to know that Jesus was not plan B. Right? Throughout, the old, the, throughout the entire Old Testament, the plan was laid out for all to see. That God would send the Son of Man as a suffering servant for the aton- or to die for the atonement of our sins as the Passover lamb. The eternal king of Israel promised to David was not just going to be an earthly king over an earthly Israel, but the perfect king of heaven. Jesus was the plan from the very beginning, and he is the only plan for salvation. As humans, we betrayed God from the very beginning. We were created to worship him by being in perfect relationship with him and with other humans and with the rest of creation. But we are sinners, and we rejected God's plan for us. We rejected his love for us, and ultimately, we rejected God himself. And in response to that betrayal, if we were in God's shoes, most of us would choose just to write off the betrayer and have nothing to do with them. But God had a plan. And that plan was to come to this earth to live a perfect, sinless life that we failed to do, earning the righteousness that we could not earn. Then he willingly went to the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice in our place to take our punishment that we deserve because we betrayed him. Three days later, he was resurrected. The tomb was empty, displaying the efficacy of the atonement and the power of the one true God. When we place our faith in him, Our betrayal is forgiven, and we are restored back into that perfect relationship that we were created to have. Our B application is to be obedient. In this passage, Jesus gives us the ultimate example of obedience. He surrendered his will to the Father's will. He knew that that surrender would lead him to suffering and anguish, torturous death on the cross. He didn't want to have to endure it. But because of his obedience to the Father, he surrendered. In your life, have you surrendered to Jesus? First, that surrender is for salvation. Have you surrendered to Jesus in faith from, uh, for, to be saved from your sins and welcomed into his perfect eternal kingdom? If not, let today be the day that you surrender to him for salvation. But then our surrender is not over. As a disciple, are you obediently surrendered to God's will in your life? Are you allowing him to stay on the throne in your heart? Or have you replaced him with some idol? Our due application, stay awake and keep watch. Jesus asked his disciples in this passage to stay awake and keep watch while he went and prayed. Jesus knew that the crowd was coming to arrest him and he asked his disciples just to be able to give him a little bit of warning before they showed up. Unfortunately, they couldn't keep their eyes open and repeatedly failed to do their part. Jesus told us that he's coming back. Jesus has warned us that he's coming back. And are you prepared? Are you, awake, are you awake and watching for his return? Are you prepared? Are you helping others to be prepared for his return? He said that he would come like a thief in the night unexpectedly. So we must always be ready. Part of that staying awake and keeping watch is being here in the church participating in the activities of the church, allowing the church to grow you in holiness 
Part of that staying awake and keeping watch is studying and applying his word to your life, growing in your holiness and helping others around you to grow in their holiness. Part of that staying awake and keeping watch is knowing the scriptures well enough to know that if somebody is up here in this church teaching heresy or teaching falseness, that you can stand up and say, no, that's not right. Are you staying awake and keeping watch? Are you prepared for his return? Are you ready and waiting for his return? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, we we praise you because you made a way for us to be reconciled to you. We rejected you. We abandoned you. And yet you chose through your love to make a way for us to be reconciled to you. God, I pray that you will help us to surrender to your will in our lives each and every day. I pray that you will help us to, to obey what you've asked us to do in our lives every step of the way, even when it seems crazy to the world around us. I pray you will give us the courage and the obedience to step up and be uh, surrendered to your will. And God, I pray that you will help us to stay awake and keep watch, to be ready for your return. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we've come to our point of response. You can respond right where you're seated. You can come to the front and pray at the cross, or you can come and pray with me. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit. This Thank you again for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more information about our church, please visit VictoryBaptistHopeMills.com or Facebook.com slash VBCHopeMills. I would also like to ask that you rate and review this podcast. And if you found this sermon helpful, please share it.